Hello, and welcome to the Coral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. I'm Chris Wilmore, and I'm thrilled to introduce this episode's exciting conversation with celebrated, award-winning Broadway and film composer, Stephen Schwartz. If you're new to No Baton Needed, the podcast is hosted by the Coral Project's founder, artistic director, and conductor, Daniel Hughes. And I'm the executive audio engineer, sometimes co-host, and announcer. Let's listen in to episode four. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hey, Daniel. Good to see you. How it's are been you a while. Holding up in all of this. You know, it's surreal. I've, I've, you know, told some of my friends, I've been oddly productive as a composer right now, which is, a, you know, a perfect topic for what we're about to talk about. But it's weird to do it when the stuff you're writing, you don't even know when it's going to be composed, if, I mean, it could be performed, if at all. <laughs> it's just like, but I've been really prolific. Lots of ideas are coming. So I, I think I've written... I'm filled with admiration. I, I cannot say the same. You know? <laughs> I think I've written, and since the, the lockdown, I've written nine works, and they're all about oh, wow. ten minutes. Ten minutes long. Um, it's weird. Good for you. But it, it, honestly, it's I look at it and go, I don't know if the, you know this is just going to go on a file. Some biographer can find it and <laughs> discover it, lining a waste basket or something. You know, better than not doing it. It's true. I mean, it is a nice outlet. You know, I'm trying to teach myself how to knit and stuff, but I get really frustrated. So, <laughs> um, okay. Well, so this podcast we're uh, we've started this is epi- um this is our third interview and the episodes we have coming up are about um composers that the core project has worked with mm-hmm. and you were obviously at the top of the list for that and so we wanted to ask you some questions about your process and and um, the works that you did for us and there's there's no particular rhyme or reason to the way these questions may come out so um if it doesn't seem like why is the train of thought going in that direction it it it's just sort of stream of consciousness but i won't um, I get to you, talk about promise. okay <laughs> i'm not actually i don't talk about the first piece uh, the, the piece that you wrote for the coral project it's a piece called caramos exactly. um, and talk a little bit about the creative process for that um and you know what inspired you about it well i believe daniel if i'm re- remembering correctly that you initially um recommended the poem the, the Longfellow poem on on which the piece is is based. Um, I can't remember now. Did you give me um, a few suggestions, and or or did you just recommend that one? I think we we had talked about um, topics, and I had said, you know, if we can find something about sort of like humanity and its interconnectedness or something. And you had said um, that something you've always really wanted to set was the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Right, and but it's I too long. And, went, I, and, I, and I'm, so it's like, how, how can we make this work? And then that made me go, oh, wait a second, there is this other poem called Kermos that is also ridiculously long. Um, and there, there's only one other setting of it out there by another composer. And so I had sent you, I think, a sample of the piece as well as the poem. And then that went from, you went from yeah. there. Well, I responded to the poem immediately in terms of both its um, philosophy and its imagery. Um, but what caught me right away was um, the very first line, turn, turn my wheel, which suggested a kind of circular musical sound and a kind of constant motion. And that just appealed to me as an idea musically. And it also seemed to me that if I could capture that, I could figure out a way to do um, an acapella choral piece that is meant, you know, not to be accompanied. Um, And so I sort of arrived at the idea of using the word caramos as a kind of repeated chant that went on underneath the um the actual setting of the poem constantly and it it varies in rhythm it has overlapping rhythm but the intention was to give a kind of constant turning and churning motor to um to the piece Oh, oh, oh. 
then now that you remind me that uh, the poem is actually longer than what I said, um, you, you know, I had the temerity to edit Mr. Longfellow and, uh, you know, go through it and, and kind of um, select the verses and the order of verses that told um, the kind of story and have the kind of build that I thought, um, you know, landed for me and, and would land for uh, the listeners. It, and the result is wonderful. For the people listening who don't know the work that the title Keramos is um, the, where we, the Greek word from ceramics comes from and the whole exactly. symbolism of the poem is this clay thrown on a wheel and that something divine is shaping us into humanity and at the end we go back to dust and become clay for another turning. And the, the turning, um, what's really wonderful about the way you wrote the turning motive is it sounds like at multiple gears at the same time because there are different levels of rhythm going on in the different parts exactly. of this Karamos chant and you can really get a mechanism spinning and it moves around from from you know the treble voices do it at one point and the guys do it at another point as they trade the melody and then the for me in that piece the most magical moment is when the word stop stop my wheel comes and you remove and it stops accompaniment yeah. and it's just the poem moments in a, in a composition it just I always have to control myself and go to because <laughs> it is just so powerful um, do you have other um, you've written obviously a lot of musicals uh, you but you've written a handful of specifically choral pieces too yes not, not too many um, the the other sort of major choral piece that I, I did was originally commissioned by um, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus just up the road from you. Uh -huh. um, and um, they didn't really specify a, um, you know, a specific topic or a theme, but they were doing a concert of other works of mine that had been arranged for um, chorus by various choral arrangers. Um, and I wanted to do an original piece for them. And I um, decided to do something based on the It Gets Better project that Dan Savage and his husband, Terry Miller, started um, to s try to reach out um, at, uh, originally to gay um, teens who were um, being bullied um, and, and in despair. And um, it, it grew out of a conversation Dan and Terry had following a rash of teen suicides. Um, but since that time, it's sort of expanded to include other um, young people who are feeling bullied for other reasons, which I think is great. Um, but in any event, I didn't want to do um, a piece that was called It Gets Better or something like that. And I, I didn't know Dan Savage at the time, though he's since become a friend. And But I, I reached out to him and he sent me a whole bunch of interviews that had been done for the It Gets Better project, which were basically gay men and women um, of a certain age, shall we say, looking back on their um, themselves when they were young and recounting how they almost didn't make it, but then we're so glad that they did. And that became the idea of the piece. And I used um, as text uh, a great deal of what um, I found in those specific interviews. And the, the piece is really, it's called Testimony, if I haven't mentioned that already. And it's, it's essentially in three parts. And the first part is um, different people talking about the shame and despair um, they feel and how self-destructive they feel. And those are direct quotes from um, things that people said to the It Gets Better project. And it kind of builds to a cacophony. And then there's a kind of bridge section where the, the chorus, if you will, um, 
who are uh, older and full of um, the wisdom of retrospect, uh, you know, just say, well, stop, wait, and, you know, um, it's, they, that's basically where they say, you know, um, if, I, if I knew then what I knew now, what would I have told my younger self? And then there is a, a second part, which is, uh, or a third part, excuse me, which is um, very sort of four part choral, straight kind of, you know, if you will, Presbyterian choral writing um, that, that basically just talks about where they are now in their in their lives and what they would have missed out on if they had taken their own lives when they were younger and the last line which for which i can take no credit because uh, it was i found it in one of the interviews that dan sent me um i i'll, I'll see if i can say it without choking up because i always uh, choke <laughs> choke up when i say it because i find it very moving um one of the men said and when i die i want to come back as me and so that's the last line of the piece and uh it's 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 a piece i'm i'm really proud of for a, a lot of reasons and uh, you know i know um that chorus and then many other choruses now both um gay choruses and and um satb choruses etc you know have performed it around the country in many situations for uh, for young people, so um, you know, it's, I'm 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 proud both of it. Uh, I'm proud of it both as a composition, but also as um, you know, something that is part of a an, an outreach, if you will, um, which Dan Dan and Terry began with the It Gets Better project. So that's I know I talked about that a long time, but that's my <laughs> I talked about it almost as long as the piece, but not quite. Uh, yeah, but that's the other sort of major choral piece, standalone choral piece um, that I've written. Um, but I like to do a choral arranging. And so generally for my shows, uh, I do the vocal arrangements. Um, and I, you know, I have certain shows, um, I guess the, the one with the most uh, choral work in it is Children of Eden, which has essentially, which, which is sort of a semi-oratorio um, and has a lot of choral. Uh, writing in it, um, but that's yeah, that's that's something that I really um, enjoy doing. Well, and and, you do quite, and that's actually a perfect segue. Um, there are three large works that you've written for the stage that are inspired from biblical tales: Godspell, Children of Eden, and Prince of Egypt. Is there something about these individual stories or the Bible in itself that is attracted to these projects? Yeah, well, I'm interested as as I perhaps went uh, I went on at perhaps too great length about when I talked about testimony. Um, I'm interested in stories which have um, philosophical content, if you will, and have to do um, with sort of our attitudes of, towards our lives and towards others, and you know, our responsibilities as human beings and all these things that sound very pretentious when you sort of say them out loud. But uh, I'm attracted to works that have, um, you know, a sort of strong thematic content, but at the same time, I'm not interested in writing essays. You know, I'm interested in telling stories and exploring emotions and interrelationships. Um, and what's good about these uh, Bible stories is that they deal with big events and people in the face of, you know, huge crises and um, very fraught interrelationships, et cetera, um, with each other and with God or, you know, whomever. And so I, I feel they provide strong dramatic fodder, if you will, but also as I say, have um, a lot of thematic underpinning that's interesting for me to explore. What I also find fascinating is that a lot of those stories um, are, they're timeless. I mean, the human condition is, we still contend with a lot of the same things now that they did then. And so of course, there's a yeah. You, it's easy to relate, like, oh, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, well, they, I think they, that's why the, why the Bible has lasted and, <laughs> and those stories have lasted, um, regardless of the degree to one, the, to which one believes that they are 
divinely inspired or God-given or, you know, you can be a, a devout um, subscriber to a certain religion or you can be uh, a complete atheist and still find in those stories and in those texts um, things that are very resonant and um, pertinent to, to our lives currently. You're, you're giving me the perfect segues. Speaking of texts, thank you. I promise <laughs> I didn't. Uh, we didn't rehearse. It. We did not. Um, how does using text spoken or shared by and about living human beings change your composing process, if at all? Um. Well, that's that. That's a good question because. Um, Frequently, if I'm, you know, just sort of writing on my own, um, and nearly always when I work uh, as a collaborator, uh, where I'm just providing lyrics. For instance, um, my my most frequent collaborator is the composer Alan Menken, and at those times, very often, the the music leads. Um, you know that that will he will come up with music first, or when I'm working on my own. Um, frequently, I'll come up with at least some of the music first, and then go and find words to um, to ride on that music, if you will. Um, so it's when one confronts text and is setting text, you know, that is a different kind of um, response. Um, you know, I, it, it goes back for me to when um, I was asked to um, come in on Godspell and many of the songs, indeed most of the songs in Godspell are resettings of Episcopal hymns. If you, you know, go to a, an Episcopal church and grab the hymnal, you'll find those lyrics in, in some of the hymns that are, uh, you know, that, that are to be found there. Um, you know, and there I would just put the text up in front of me and kind of respond to it musically, rhythmically, you know, that's the thing about um, given text is that it has its own, um, it, it gives you a lot of clues and you're basically responding and trying through music to convey um, the personal response that the composer has to it. You know, I, we, we, we sort of talked um, at a little bit of length about Karamus and how that came to be and about how the first line of Turn, Turn My Wheel and, and the, that, that kind of um, circular rhythm, if you will, of the way I heard the, um, the Longfellow poem influenced the, the sound of, of the music and the way it was composed. So, you know, that's a, that's a different process and it's, um, you know, it's fun and exciting if you have a text to respond to. Well, and it's, it's a process that you, you've dipped your toe in the, the theatrical one where you're generating a musical idea can generate a lyric um, as opposed to something poetic or something established already there generating a musical idea. Um, and it, so it's, it's wonderful that you've had a chance to be able to do both things because they, do, they are really a different process. Yeah, they are. I mean, ultimately the idea is to have a, a work, a, a song, or a choral composition, or whatever, that feels um, as if it was created it whole cloth. You know, the words and the music all just happened, and they, and they come together um, seamlessly. You know, that's, that's the goal. Um, but what one can come at it from, from different approaches. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm doing this sitting at a piano, and I was thinking about the the opposite process, and I thought I would, you know, what um, thinking about now. This is not choral work, but you know, when I first was starting on Wicked, um, before really we'd done much work of anything, uh, anything in terms of the story, and certainly before any songs were written, I kind of just musically responded to certain ideas or certain feelings in the book. And um, I came across a, you know, a piece of manuscript paper um, in my little files or whatever, um, which, which contained little things I'd scrawled from the very first day of, of working on the show or starting to work on the show. And I, and I found this.
that I that I scrawled that down as you know something that to me conveyed the feeling of of power and and of the witch coming into her own power, um, and that of course became kind of the um, the motif, if you will, for um, the song "Defying Gravity." But I didn't actually write the song for about two years after that. So yeah, so so you know, um, inspiration or or that's not really the right word, but the process can begin from other other places. But you know, it it also can come from from text, as you say. A lot of times, pretty much most times, for many years now, in terms of how my process is developed, when I'm writing a song, I like to get to the title. I like to find out what is the title of the song as quickly as I can, because that defines to me so much about the other parameters of the song, both lyrical and musical. Um, you know, so again, that's something that one's just you know, responding to. Yeah, anytime you can delimit the infinite amount of possibilities, it makes the creative process easier. Exactly right. Otherwise, you're just overwhelmed with, I don't know what direction to take this in because there are too many options. So that, that's a, I had never thought of that, trying to get to what's, what, what's the title that would govern this realm that I'm trying to sort of build. You were talking about Wicked, Gregory McGuire's book. Um, have there been other books that were pitched to you as possible musicals that you've turned down, or are there books that you've read that you would love to turn into a musical? Yeah, there. I mean, there are a lot of books that I've turned down um, because I feel I need to sort of respond to something and uh, and and feel that it's it's in my in my territory first of all, but also that I have something to bring to it that doesn't exist within the work itself. Um, I can think of two projects that to which I tried to get the rights, two books that I reached out to the author and tried to get the rights and was turned down. Um, just, you know, as examples, I wanted to musicalize uh, the novel, The Curious Incident of the Dog and the Night, and um, the author turned me down. But it's, it's for those who don't notice, it's an excellent, excellent and wonderfully written book. And it was turned ultimately into an extremely good stage play, brilliantly directed. Um, you know, a year or two after, well, maybe more than a couple of years after I had originally tried to get the rights. But um, it's about an autistic boy. And the way it is written, it sort of has the patterns of how this boy's mind works. And in some ways, it's, they're very musical. And so I thought it would be really interesting to try to um, characterize, to try and bring to life, you know, the, 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 the inner workings of a mind, um, of an autistic mind, in the way the music functioned. Um, so that was very interesting to me, but I, you know, didn't get the chance to do it. Um, and then there's a, a very dark uh, book, uh, I think it's uh, the the author's German called Perfume, but I read it in translation. Um, and uh, yeah, it's sort of a, a, a kind of take uh, on the Dionysius story. Um, but it's but it's very uh, again it deals with a different sense, you know, the sense of smell. And I thought, you know, conveying the the emotions that this. Uh, leading character has with this incredibly acute sense of smell that allows him to invent all these perfumes that have magical effects on people um, and powerful uh, that 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 exert power over people who who smell them. That that to use that so to to try and convey a different sense through music seemed a, a rich idea to me. Um, but again, yeah, I, I didn't get they it. They both sound so great. Those yeah, but they both were great ideas, right? Yeah. But I, yeah, I didn't get my chance to do them. Um, at least the Curious Incident was turned into a really great play. That they, they did make a movie of Perfume, but I, I didn't feel it was very successful. <laughs> but it's a very good book. Are there uh, books that... Um... Well, you may, you might not be able to actually tell us if there are things in the pipeline that are secret still. Are, 
like projects coming? Well, no, right now the um, the things that I'm working on are none of them is based right at least currently on an individual uh, novel. They're you know they're they're spins in some ways on um, you know which which I tend to like to do spins on sort of familiar characters or um, you know, familiar stories, but, uh, yeah, but it's, but it's not like Wicked, you know, adapted from a specific novel, at least nothing that I'm working on right now. Okay. So Wilson Aguilar, the, our marketing director and the executive producer for our podcasts wanted to, he, he had a, this question because he was living in New York at the time. So he saw both Godspell and Wicked, and he wanted to know what it was like to have two of your most iconic works being performed in side-by-side -side theaters. What was, yes, they were, um, for, for people who don't live in New York and don't know, Wicked plays at the Gershwin Theater, um, which is one of the larger theaters in New York, and sort of sharing a common wall with the Gershwin Theater is um, Circle in the Square, which is one of the smaller Broadway theaters, and that's where Godspell was. What was great about that was that um, I could go back and forth. So, you know, I could check on the first act of Godspell and then second act Wicked, and it was extremely convenient. Um, so that, that was the best thing about it. That doesn't, I, I can't imagine when else something like that has actually happened, when same composer, two theaters sharing a wall. Oh, surely, Andrew Lloyd Webber has so many shows always running at the same time. Surely he's done that so. Oh, maybe. Maybe I don't know. That's it. I love that though. That it's just I wish I could have been there, um, and 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 indeed very convenient where you can just pop in and out, just go next door. Yeah, you didn't even I, if it was raining, you wouldn't even get wet. <laughs> so they're really like there's actually a way to get from one to the other. Inside yeah, the, the same they, building. The, that theater complex is um, just uh, east of Eighth Avenue between Fiftieth Street and Fifty First Street in Manhattan, and the theater for Wicked is closer to 51st and Circle and Square is closer to 50th, but they're, but they're both literally right next to each other underneath a big sort of, you know, protective overhang. That's great. Um, when you had mentioned that you have some things that you're working on, has the pandemic affected your ability to compose or has it affected subject matter? Um, it has been affecting, I will say, my ability to compose. Um, that's why when you began our conversation by saying how productive you've been, I've, I've been filled with admiration um, because I, I find, uh, and I'm not exactly sure why I've uh, had this reaction, but I've been finding it very difficult to write, um, to work on projects that have sort of long-term um, you know, like like a full show where you're writing a whole lot of songs and, you know, um, that you have to sort of think of an overall score and, and it's a, a project that you know is going to take quite a while to come to fruition, which is the kind of project I've spent my life doing, but I'm finding that really challenging to do. What I've been able to do is one-offs. I've been able to do, you know, when there is a specific assignment for like one song for a particular, you know, television show or film that needs, you know, um, this one song to be done. I've been, I've been able to do that, but, um, and, 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 you know, and, and also those having tight deadlines helps as well. But when it's sort of the self-motivating kind of writing, or self-motivated, excuse me, kind of writing that um, I've done, you know, since I was in college, I'm really finding that um, pretty close to impossible right now. Do you find that any of that has to do with the fact that there, there aren't deadlines looming? I think so, that yeah. Because things are just sort of in a, in a hovering... Like I think that's the, that's the most anxiety producing aspect to me of the of this entire thing, which has many, many <laughs> aspects that produce anxiety. But it's the fact that we just the, the future is so uncertain. You know, I think if there was suddenly an announcement from on high and they said the pandemic will end 
on April 12th, 2021, or any date, no matter sort of how long, how far away it was, we'd all be, we'd all feel better. We'd be like, oh, okay, all right. So now we have to get through till April 12th, 2021, and this is how I can organize my time, and this is what I'll do with it. It's the fact that we, we just don't know. And of course, you know, particularly in America, we've, we've dealt with it in, in such a slipshod and stupid way that it's made it worse than in pretty much, you know, I guess there are a couple of other countries who dealt with it almost equally badly. But, you know, we've been the worst in the world, and consequently, I think it's made it especially difficult. Yeah, it's protracting everything. It just Yeah, and you never, it's so things. sloppy. And you, right. you just never know. It just feels like we're, we're never, ever going to get a handle on this. Um, unlike, as I said, pretty much every other country in the world, which seems to have, you know, figured out a way to uh, move along. New Zealand. <laughs> They're amazing in New Zealand. Well, New Zealand, you know, I mean, yes, of course. But that's a special, you know, they are an island country. They're not um, incredibly populated, you know, and so on. That, it's much easier to, to control there, I think. But, and, and if New Zealand were the only country in the world that had handled it well, you could credit, <laughs> you know, the, the uh, fortuitous geography. But, you know, Germany, yeah, or, for, you for know, sure. and, and so on. And, you know, one could make the, the list of, of countries, um, some of which have been characterized as shithole countries, and yet somehow they've handled this pandemic a whole lot better than we have. So Right. The, speaking of the pandemic, I know Broadway's been hugely impacted by it. Um, how has it impacted specifically the Wicked family? And do you think there's going to be any bouncing back after this is done? Well, what, yeah. What, what I mean, would that I, look like? I hope and expect that there is going to be um, bouncing back, and it's really a question of when. Um, you know, I'm fortunate in that we know that Wicked, having been well-established as it was, um, when Broadway comes back, it will come back. And, you know, I, in the West End, where I have two shows, um, that were running when the West End shut down. Um, Wicked Again, which has been running for a long time, um, will come back. And, you know, there, there was a little bit of concern about Prince of Egypt because it had only just opened. And even though it was doing very well, um, you know, it was brand new, but um, that, is, that is scheduled to reopen with the rest of the West End too. And then we'll see what kind of impact um, you know, the pandemic and will audiences come, et cetera. But I, I just feel there's, you know, a real hunger for um, the kind of uh, social experience that live theater and concerts, choral concerts, things like that, you know, I think we really miss them. We miss being in a, you know, we're social beings uh, as human human animals. And, or I should have said, we're social animals as human beings. but. But, you know, we like to gather for a group experience at, that's shared with performers who are live, you know, that the whole thing is, is live and we're all in this one place at this particular time. Um, and uh, uh, there's always been a hunger for that, you know, for the history of humanity. So I, I think that right now it's quite pent up and presumably um, once it's, it's safe to return, um, I'm, I'm expecting, you know, people to return um, enthusiastically. I think that the the concert stages and the theater stages will they'll ha they'll have more people than they know what to do with. It'll just be such a huge influx of people are starving for it right now. And oddly enough, it's these arts that are the thing that would normally help them navigate a difficult time, and. Now they're in a difficult time, and because of the specific of that time, they cannot, they cannot actually find any, you know, sort of succor or solace in the thing that normally yeah. helps them. I mean, one of the things that I think is a positive um, outcome artistically is the beginning of a, an emerging new genre, which I'm starting to see of things 
designed to be seen on your computer and put together through Zoom or people in their separate um, compartments, but then how they're put together, how graphic design is used, green screen animation, people are starting to find very clever ways of uh, creating something which is its own form. You know, it's not live, but it's not what you would watch on television or on a movie screen. Um, and that's very interesting. Um, you know, I, I think it will be a relief when it's not the only <laughs> form out there, but, it, but it's interesting to see, um, you know, the creativity of people as they're starting to figure out how to do things with the medium we have. There's some collaborative work being done too that I don't think we would ever have seen. For example, uh, Nicoletta uh, Benedetti is a wonderful world-class violinist, got 12 or 11 other violinists, all like top echelon, and they broke up the the last caprice, the uh, Capriche by Paganini. They divided it up and then they strung it all together so you got to see every violinist play a part of it into this one work. And I mean, you'd never see 12 world-class violinists on stage doing something like that at the same time. So this has afforded some very interesting, creative, collaborative um, things that are exciting. Yeah, well, this is, that's what I mean. I mean, in the field that, that we're discussing, of course, well before the pandemic, Eric Whitaker had created this kind of vir the virtual choirs, which every time he does it, it seems like, you know, they're, they're 10 times as big as they were before. I mean, the, the amount of work that that takes, editing work on Eric's and his team's part is so extraordinary. But, you know, there again, that's something that you, you could only do with this uh, newfangled medium, if you will. I'm, I'm going to jump to a, a totally different category. What is your favorite musical composition of all time? Oh, gosh. Um, I wasn't, I'm, I'm not prepared for that. I mean, so many things are swimming through well, If you, through if my you head. have a few. Uh, I do. Um, let's see. I mean, you know, when, when t I, I tend to think of, um, you know, musical periods, uh, you know, I, I guess, um, what, well, what's, what's coming to me right away are, uh, is Appalachian Spring. Copeland and also um, El Salon Mexico, um, just because when I first heard Copeland, I I just had never heard orchestration and the, just just his voice um, was ju just like bam went in, into my heart. I'm a, I'm a I'm a big Rachmaninoff fan of um, several of the Rachmaninoff pieces. Of course, things like the Mozart Requiem. Um, you know, uh, some of the Beethoven sonatas, maybe because I played them, um, but just, uh, you know, those are, those are favorites of mine. Um, oh gosh, you know, uh, so some Ravel, um, Ravon for Dead Princess. I mean, there's so many, you know, it's just like, what are you? You know, uh, um, oh, uh, Carmina Marana. I know that's kind of cheesy, but again, I'd never, I'd never heard anything like that. And um, you know, Orff's approach to to rhythm and um, yeah, just, that was uh, that was revelatory to me hearing that. And th those are the classical pieces. And then um, you know, uh, uh, there are a lot of. Um, musical theater, you know, pieces and um, pop things and folk things. You know, I think those of us who love music, I think it's very hard to say like, oh, that's my favorite, you know? Um, and I, I've just reeled off things that popped into my head now. Um, so I suppose that's probably viscerally an honest reaction, but I know that after this interview is done, I'm going to be like, oh, why didn't I say this? Because that's really my favorite, you know? Um, you know, those of us who love music, there's lots of love. And um, I, think it's, I think it's hard to say this one thing is my favorite. When people ask me what my favorite choral pieces are, I, I 
the only safe answer I can really give is whatever I'm working on right now. It, okay, fair it, enough. It just, it, because even within just general classical music too, I'll come, it's exactly what happened with you. I'll come up with a title and that will beget another, oh, here's this one and here's this one. And I mean, it's, there's just a lot of room in, I think, the human spirit for many favorites. Yeah, and they're different. I mean, you know, one, it, it feels, you know, to talk about, uh, you know, the the Bach inventions, you know, and and then talk about, as I said, you know, Carmina Burano or a Copeland or whatever. I mean, they're how could how could you know they're so different and they they trigger different emotions and different responses. Um, it, it, it's hard to be like, oh well, no, this is the one that speaks most completely to me. That's neat to hear you uh, list some of those out. Um, when you hear, especially a composer, start doing that, you because invariably you know that those things have influenced you also. If if they've if, you know fired you up, if they've captured your heart, then you know in some way that they're probably going to be. They definitely influence yeah. me. I mean, I can I. And I've been asked, you know, this this question from the point of view of, you know, as a composer, what are works that influenced you? And I've cited some of these, and I can say, like this bar right here in the Moonlight Sonata, I keep stealing that bar over and over again. You know, like those, you you, you know, if, if, if one is aware, I think, to some extent of of, of the influences, and um, you know, so I keep sort of. Being like, oh right, yeah, I, I kind of got that from Mr. Copeland, you know. <laughs> are there um, are there do's and don'ts, don'ts that you follow when you're composing? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I try not to repeat myself to the extent that I can avoid it. Um, that's difficult. I, I find to avoid because one's, you know, style, whatever it is, is one style. Uh, um, so, but I don't have sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, like don't do parallel fifths or something. In fact, I, I kind of like to break those rules. <laughs> All those things that I was taught in theory at Juilliard, I, I like to break those rules. Um, but yeah, I don't think there are really, you know, I can't think off the top of my head like a sort of like do's and don'ts. I, what I've learned over the years is that the more I can write something to which I respond personally, emotionally, the more something really feels like it, it's, it's come from inside me and, you know, excites me or moves me or amuses me or whatever, which is, you know, very, one would think very solipsistic and sort of um, turning inward. Actually, I found that those are the th works that speak most to other people, because in some way as human beings, we sort of resonate on a, a, sub, an, a, a, a subconscious or, you know, below conscious level in, in a lot of the same ways. I mean, that's one of the things that I find really magical about music. If you think about it, that you can hear, as I'm sure you've had this experience, I've had this experience, you hear for the first time a piece of music that was composed hundreds of years before you were born by someone with, from an entirely different culture, with an entirely different set of experiences and background or whatever, and you hear this music and tears come to your eyes. It has such a strong emotional impact. How could that be? How could that be? I mean, I know that we can talk about the works of Shakespeare or you know, Greek theater or a painting that was done a long time ago, obviously, that, that has impact. But somehow I always feel that, that there's a filter there, that you're like, okay, I'm, I'm experiencing a Shakespeare play, but first I just have to get used to this language and I start, have to start being able to hear it. Or I'm looking at this painting, but first I have to like see past the actual 
you know, style of that period or whatever. But music is just like bang. It just, there, there's no filter. That's an amazing phenomenon, I think. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and, and so I, I think there's, when one is writing, I think if you try to tap into that well of whatever that subterranean subconscious river that runs through all of us as human beings, if you can dip into that even a little bit, that's, that's the goal. Carl Jung would be so proud of you right now. I guess, yeah. This Jungian sort of shared consciousness underneath kind of thing. And I agree with it. I, I think that's why music, you know, works of art, uh, musical works of art, specifically something that doesn't have a text to it, when it's even more abstract, can just have such a universal effect on somebody. Uh, yeah. You don't, you don't have to navigate through anything to get to whatever the kernel of emotional truths are in that piece. It, it's, yeah. I can or, totally or, or, or a text where you don't understand the language, or they're right. singing in Latin or something like that. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of more questions. Um, you, we were talking about gathering in theater when it's going to resume. What do you remember? What the very first thing you saw on stage was? Um, I can remember the first. I remember strongly the first Broadway show that I saw. I must have seen some kind. Some, you know. There must have been something in a school, you know, school or something that I saw before that. Um, I do remember, I don't even remember specifically what it was, but, I, but when I was a kid, there were a couple of big, you know, sort of movie palaces where they would have, they would show a movie, but there'd also be a stage show. And I guess Radio City was like that for a while. But I remember that my mom took me to see some movie that had a stage show along with it when I was, you know, I don't know, six or seven or something like that. And my having that response to live theater, even though it was just, you know, I, I'm, it wasn't a, a, a play, play that I was seeing, um, that was indelible for me. and you know, set the course of my life. Um, the first show that I saw was um, a musical that was not successful, that was composed by a friend of my parents. Um, his, the composer's name was George Kleinsinger, and the show was called Shinbone Alley. Um, and it was, I mean, this is funny because uh, it was, it featured a, um, a large chorus of, of dancing cats because um, it was about alley cats and uh, a, a, a cockroach who was in love with an alley cat. It sounds sort of very weird to describe it, but um, it was based on some successful stories that had appeared in The New Yorker. But it was roundly ridiculed by the critics, you know, saying, like, why would anyone want to go and watch a bunch of dancing cats? So, you know, then... It was just it shows too ahead of its time. The importance of timing, yes, exactly. <laughs> but... Um, you know, but when I saw that for the first time, I had that experience that I think most people who choose to go into the theater, certainly go into musical theater, have of the first time, whatever it is, you see a musical, that's it, you're, you're, you're doomed for life from then on. Well, this, I, I love, I could, we could spend hours just, I mean, picking your brain because it, it's such a, an incredible rich fount of experience and wisdom. Um, I'm going to loop back with this next question to kind of the, the, the final statement and testimony that you referred to when you're talking about if I come back, I want to come back as me. If you could give advice to your younger self, what would you tell yourself? That's also a good question. Um, I think I would talk about the importance of um, perseverance that um, you know being being in the arts whatever whether we're a choral director or a composer or a performer or 
any kind of artist, it's, it's not easy. And you don't always get a lot of um, encouragement and support. And, you know, you're constantly putting yourself out there. You're kind of always holding your, your heart out there for people to take shots at. You know, it's like walking around with a great big target drawn on you. And, you know, if you have a target drawn on you, people are going to shoot at it. Um, and, and I think that took me by surprise. And I had to learn how to deal with that. Um, and so I think I would like to have warned my younger self about that, because I think it would have saved me a lot of grief and a lot of time um, trying to learn coping mechanisms. Um, you know, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't have changed what I did in terms of the, the choice I made to, um, you know, to live my life as a, as a composer and a lyricist and a storyteller, you know, it's, it, it was my passion when I was seven and it's, you know, my passion now that I'm 72. So, you know, um, that didn't change, but, but, but how to, um, how to negotiate the, the rocky path. Uh, I think, uh, I would, I would like to have been able to advise myself a bit about that. I think those words resonate. Very, very well. I when I think about what I would have done, I I think I would have gotten places sooner, and I would have been able to get out of my own way too. And I'm trying to figure out how to handle the pain. So that's, that's wonderful. Getting that's out of your own way. I mean, that's that's a great way to put it. You know, I mean, I think that's something each of us has to learn. Um, you know, and maybe the thing is that that when you're young, you just don't listen to what anybody <laughs> is telling you. And we probably wouldn't listen to our older selves anymore than we that. listen to our parents or anybody else. You're going to do what you're going to do. Exactly. Well, Stephen, this, I, it's, I've missed talking to you. It's great to see you again. It's so good to see you, you, even, even in, in a screen across the country. And I love that technology affords us an opportunity to be on opposite coasts and, and do something like this. There is that. Stephen, thank you for taking time to do this. We really appreciate it. It's, it's my pleasure. And uh, I, I so long for the time when we'll be able to see each other in actual, factual person. And um, grab a meal together, yeah. Exactly. I, I, I miss that and uh, I long for it. So one hopes that it won't be that far in the future. Well, until then, uh, Godspeed and best wishes and all our love. Thank you. All right. Same to you. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you. So long. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of the No Baton Needed podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Coral Project on SoundCloud, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And subscribe to and download and like the No Baton Needed podcast, now available on most major streaming services. If you're interested in becoming a podcast sponsor, have questions or praise, or ideas for upcoming episodes of No Baton Needed, please email us at podcast at coralproject.org. See you next time.